are listening to your pod and your staff, the podcast of College Life Christian Fellowship at UC Davis. I am Peter Nittler, the college pastor of First Baptist Church in Davis, California, and our mission is to shape college-age people from all spiritual starting points into complete and equipped agents of King Jesus. And on this podcast, we want to have conversations that will accompany our Tuesday night Zoom gatherings, and we hope that they form you encourage you, maybe even make you laugh, and that they would be a source of King Jesus guiding you through this time. And today's episode features a special guest and the first time appearance of Stanford and my good friend, recent College Life alum, Christian Wingate. And the thing I've reflected on since having this conversation is just how deeply Christian it is. And I mean that on two levels. The first is that Christian Wingate was just made to speak on a podcast. And this episode has all the Christian Wingate flavors that you know and love. Just super sharp thinking and communication. Um, obscure theological deep dives. Hello, Enoch. And just the most palpable passion that you can experience with someone talking about the text. And, you know, there's a lot of great content in here. But what I'm really excited about you hearing is the excitement that Christian has just for talking about this stuff. It's infectious. But I also mean that it's deeply Christian in that a lot of the things that Peter is talking about in his letter, the way to respond to suffering, the particular subversive but respectful submission to authority, so much of that to me seems to only make sense, only make sense if you think that Jesus was who he said he was and is worth following with your whole life. And maybe that is self-evident, but like, I don't think that you arrive at these particular convictions or these particular conclusions apart from a worldview that holds Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection as a template for life. I think with any other lens or any other starting point, a lot of this stuff might sound foolish or idealistic. And there's something challenging about that, like that must mean that there's going to be some conflict with people who don't have the same worldview, or it might just be really difficult But there's also something strangely affirming about that to me. Like we are called to be something different and something I think that is more beautiful and just feels more true than everything else on offer. So anyway, I hope that all this talk about suffering in this episode isn't too on the nose for all of you who are preparing to take finals. And I hope that listening to this can give you a nice little study break. And so all my your pod and your staff friends, I really hope that you enjoy the podcast. All right. Well, we have made it to week 10 of your pod and your staff. This is our sort of second big full quarter doing this, and it's been quite a joy. And, you know, we have had our fair share of highly touted guests. We had Miriam come through here. We had Bronwyn come through here. We had Dan Seitz sit in this chair. And I must say that I have been particularly excited about this morning. It feels a little bit different because we have Christian Wingate, recent College Life graduate, with us this morning, joining Stanford and me. Good morning to you, Mr. Wingate. Good morning to you, Peter and Stanford. Hey, guys. What often happens to me, I don't know exactly what the word sanguine means, but I think that it's this is that I get very sanguine each morning before each podcast with each guest. I start sort of reflecting on my life with them. And I don't know if that's just my particular personality. But is that what the word sanguine means, by the way? It's close enough Sort of like emotional? Yeah. Stanford? I'm Googling it. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I was thinking about how fortunate I felt to be in your life for the last like six or so years, Christian. And I was thinking about, you know, in sports, there's this sort of divide between is a player on your team homegrown 
or did you sort of sign them? You know, like like Steph Curry and Clay Thompson were drafted by the Warriors. They grew up with the Warriors. And so when they excel with the Warriors, it's like, oh, it's, it feels so good, you know, versus, you know, Kevin Durant. It's so great to have him. But you just signed him. You know, you didn't do you didn't you weren't the scout, you know. And so I think that's how I feel when I just when you do anything, Christian, you know, when you do anything that causes me joy, I'm like, oh, I, I got to see this happen. I watched this growth happen. So now that you, you know, are graduated from college, you're a married man now, you're a seminarian, you're a working man doing the Stanford bivocational thing. And it's like, I feel pretty confident that you are in our sort of language, complete and equipped, like you're set up for a lifelong relationship with Jesus. And and I'm very proud of you. So it's really cool to be in, in sitting in this seat with you. And I'm sure Stanford could say something similar. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, I've been feeling very excited for this conversation to have you particularly talking with us and kind of wanted to have a little bit of an update from you. Maybe the people in the community or maybe your colleagues in your class are listening to this and maybe haven't heard from you in a bit. Like I just said, lots of changes have happened. You're in seminary now. You're married now. I'd love to hear anything from the the seminary life that has been particularly interesting or I don't know, whatever you got. Any story from seminary that you want to share just to catch us up? Real quick. I remember sitting in Phil's with you like two years ago. This was long before coronavirus was a thing, long before the College Life podcast was ever a thing. And you and I were just sitting there and you were like, I've really been interested in doing a podcast. Like, that's my dream. Yeah. And I was like, Peter, that's my dream too. And I just want to say, look at us now. We're doing it. Look at us now. We're doing it. We made it. (laughs) Yeah, we made it. You've been present at a lot of like really crucial moments in my sort of ministry career. Like when you all were a freshman, I think your class looms really largely in my heart. I think because I started not as the college pastor. So I was under Dan. And so I was sort of freed up to just do a lot of the relational stuff. I wasn't doing a lot of the organizational stuff. And so I feel like your class was perfect because it was, it, I started just as like highly investing in you as freshmen and just like spending a lot of time and, you know, staying in the cabin at fall retreat and, and all that stuff. And then you sort of grew with me as the college pastor. And I know I talked with you before, like in the summer before the first fall and was sort of talking like, this is the kind of the changes I want to make. This is kind of what I want the leadership team to look like. And you were sort of instrumental in sort of being one of the first ears to hear that kind of stuff and to give me the confidence to be like, maybe this will be okay. You know, maybe this can work. So anyway. And then the podcast conversation. You're right. I remember that. And you're like, dude, you should do it. You got to find an angle. You got to find a lane. (laughs) Yeah. So since I graduated in December of 2019, I started classes at Denver Seminary. And it's kind of a funny story how I got there. I was thinking about going to seminary. I think, you know, Stanford really impressed upon me kind of doing the bivocational thing. I think full-time ministry is not something I've been totally interested in, but I've always wanted to continue doing stuff just like this, like what we're doing right now. Highly lucrative. Highly lucrative. lucrative. You don't even know how much they pay me to be on this. It's ridiculous. (laughs) And uh, so I was I was looking at doing some just kind of some classes on the side, mostly as a passion project for my own interest. And I listen to a few few different podcasts by a few different theologians. I do have a rule, and it's that I only listen to hot theologians. (laughs) I (laughs) there's a lot of like old old men out there. I don't listen to those guys. I only listen to like really good looking theologians like Tim Mackey, (laughs) the guy named Preston Sprinkle. This is not college life approved. (laughs) Boy, Tim Mackey is good looking though. I put a picture of him on my PowerPoint for for First Timothy last night. Gosh, yeah, he's he's not not bad to look at. Mm -hmm. No, he's not. Uh, Christine, have you not been listening to me the whole time? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Tell us how often you listen to our podcast. (laughs) Every week, Peter. Every week. (laughs) 
And uh, he he interviewed another hot theologian, a guy named Joey Dodson, who had who was his best friend, and he just started a job at Denver Seminary. I'd never thought about it, never looked into it before. And I just, you know, he had really good things to say about it. So I just kind of hopped on and, and looked at the website. They had a program that I really enjoyed and started doing that online before the, uh, the pandemic even hit. And so, um, yeah, now, now I'm here. I'm doing classes. I just finished my first year. I'm working at a job in Vacaville. It's a technical sales engineer selling membranes. If you want to know what that is, you can ask me another time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different yeah, podcast. A different podcast. Yeah. yeah, I got married two months ago to uh, the woman of my dreams, Olivia now Wingate, who many of you That's know right. as Olivia Thorne. Peter married us. That was exciting. Stanford was there. That was exciting. We had a wedding yep. in COVID. That was exciting. A lot of yeah. exciting things happening. And now I have a very small <laughs> apartment in Northeast Davis. Yeah. It's like when we take people on the tour, it's like, here's the one room. Here's the other one. <laughs> That's it. That's the tour. Yep. Uh, Katie and I look very fondly at our small apartment living days. Yeah. These are good years. Really, really it's good great. years. Yeah, us too. Um, well, you were tasked with reading First Peter a ton of times and to just tell us how you felt and what you thought reading it. And so uh, we're going to dive into the podcast. You obviously spoke, as people are hearing this, the, the night before on First Peter. And and I'm assuming what a wonderful talk that was. Well done by you. Thank, but, thank you. Yes. And, but let's dive into this. Let's, let's jump <laughs> into the to the text and and sort of experience it like we've been doing with with all the rest of the epistles and this is our first diversion from Paul in a while so maybe we'll get a sense of a, a little different yeah. voice you know it'd be nice which, which to be honest is exciting for me because I have a really hard time with Paul Peter is just much yeah. more understandable for me yeah, yeah so he sounds you know he's obviously writing in the same vein of thought as Paul but he just sounds a lot different he argues differently he's got different things on his mind and uh, some of his kind of primary concerns are kind of follow this red thread throughout the New Testament, but he applies them in really particular ways. And so, First uh, Peter was probably you know written by Peter in the early 60s. This is shortly before Nero's persecution after the Great Fire of Rome in 64 AD, and he starts pe- persecuting Christians. So this is happening just before that, on the eve of that persecution. It's written to five Roman provinces: Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And the readers here are mostly Gentiles, more than likely. It's probably a mixed group, but predominantly Gentiles. Yeah. And that's curious because you open up the letter with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion. And that's a really curious set of language to use if you're addressing Gentiles. I mean, it's almost strictly Jewish language. And mm-hmm. the reason he's using it, and there, there's clues as to why these are this is a Gentile audience later in the letter, but he's using it because the first chapter of First Peter is all about how the Gentiles have been grafted into the people of God. They have a new identity. And so Peter is applying the Jewish language that would be strictly used of the Jewish people to the Gentiles to kind of solidify them, to show them this is your story now. You mm-hmm. formerly had no story, and now you do. You have been grafted into salvation history. And so it's such a great image. So grafting is such a great it's image. It's so great. Yeah. And just to be clear, to just to remind folks, all a Gentile is is someone who's not mm-hmm, Jewish. Right. So these are the Greeks and the Asians and the Romans who are coming to faith and kind of the faith is, you know, merging out of these Jewish synagogues. And so there there's this mixing going on. Yeah. Yes. So Gentile is like most people. That's us. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else. Yeah. I'm a Gentile. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going to use this exile language kind of throughout the letter. There's a few different ways of understanding it. One of the more traditional interpretations that these are spiritual exiles that with the idea that, you know, all people have been spiritually exiled from their true home in God. And we are all mm-hmm. kind of spiritual pilgrims on this journey back to God. The second option is that the church was made up of literal 
foreigners and exiles, people who actually were not from that area and had traveled to that area and were not in their home country anymore. And so for that reason, they are socially marginalized, they're lower class, uh, they don't belong there. And the third option, which is kind of what we're going to work with today, is that these people are metaphorically exiled from their communities because of their faith. So they have been cast Uh, out of society and they're being looked down upon specifically because of their faith. And as well as their just natural lower status, we'll see he's talking to some slaves, to women who just have a lower status in the the ancient world. And so that's kind of where we're starting with. It's sort of like actually feeling exiled from their communities, but they live there. Like they're they're not physical exiles. They're sort of social exiles. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, gotcha. And so... This group of people is undergoing some form of persecution for their faith. We're not at the point yet where there is actual like government sanctioned hostility and, and persecution towards Christians, but there's definitely, I mean, you, and you read it in all of Acts, there is at least local persecution in the form of economic, social ostracization, and sometimes it turns violent. It's not always violent, but it can be. And it's, you know, it's aggressive mm-hmm. enough that Peter's going to describe this series of persecutions they're going through as a fiery ordeal in, in chapter four, verse 12. Right. And so that's kind of the, the right. background to what we're dealing with here. That's so interesting. I think it's strange that much more persecution is coming up, you know, that there's obviously enough persecution to, to warrant the writing of the book or the writing of the letter. And then once the fire hits and Christians get blamed and there's heads on stakes and stuff, it's like the persecution is going to ramp up. It's, it's interesting. I was going to make a wartime analogy, but it's just interesting that it's like, I wonder if anything would have been changed had it been written post fire, post, you know, Nero nastiness, you know? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, to be honest, I think the, the because Peter's going to ground all of his response to this persecution in Christology in the person of Jesus, I don't think his answer would change dramatically. I think he would have a lot of the same yeah. things to mm-hmm. say. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's great. So basically what we're dealing with is people who are having a pretty rough time as a result of them being Jesus followers. They're having a rough yeah, time. And Peter writing, yeah, to encourage them. But uh, let's jump into the categories. Let's theme some themes. Christian, you know the drill. You've been listening along. So obviously you're reading through this. And as you read, specifically as you read like the whole letter all in one fell swoop, you just notice the a theme pops up. He's mentioning the same thing over and over again. So as you read First Peter, what theme did you theme, my friend? So First Peter, the main point of First Peter and its its primary theme is this theme of suffering witness. I, I did a bunch of writing on this earlier this year. This is like maybe my favorite theme in all of scripture. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's everywhere. And so we'll just kind of walk through it step by step. So as Christians, we are God's representatives. We should bear God's name well. The world sees who God is partially through us, partially and primarily. Mm. And you know, Peter's going to go on and say in chapter two, he says, you are a chosen race of royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you I may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. What uh, version are you reading? NRSV. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, proclaim his excellencies mm. is uh, the ESV and it's burned into my brain. <laughs> so it was like, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So the first really noteworthy thing to note about that is just Remember that this is being read to a Gentile audience. So to call the Gentile audience, or at least the primarily Gentile yeah. audience, the chosen race and the royal priesthood is mm-hmm. huge. Like that's really significant. And the second thing is just a note, like look at the purpose of who these people are, what they're for. It's to proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are the royal priesthood. That's our purpose. And so mm-hmm. as we kind of move forward, these Christians are experiencing this persecution. Peter is going to say, hey, 
the way that you respond to the suffering you're going through tells a story. Your response tells a story. And the story you tell reflects on God. Like the people around you that are not Christian, that don't know who God is, are going to see that you, the way that you respond to persecution and they mm. are going to understand who God is based on your response. And that's going to mm. frame everything that Peter has to say for the entirety of this letter. Yeah. So, okay. You're saying essentially that just as being Christians, as being people who who bear God's name, like you say, we are representing him in things that we do. I, I had a seminary professor say one time that like, we are essentially translating the scriptures for people who don't know them. Like by the way that we live, we are telling them this is what we believe. You know, it's a very simple idea, but it makes a lot of sense. And And then you're saying, okay, in this particular chapter of your, you know, living for God life, you're suffering. And so the way that you respond to this suffering will tell the people who are watching, sort of why it matters, what difference it makes to be a Christian. You are proclaiming something about God and about your life and about what it means to be human by the way that you respond to this suffering chapter. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. One of the things I really like about the 2, 9, and 10 that you read is that you know, all those metaphors that he uses are plural, right? Like chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, yeah. God's own people. He doesn't say, you know, you are a person of this race, you are a priest, you are a, a citizen. He's like, he's really taking a community aspect there. You are a people. And so I think in the context of the suffering witness, witness is one of those weird words that could be singular or plural, but it is plural. It is a corporate yeah. witness, knitting together some of the other themes we talked about where you know everything in the Christian life and the Christian story is in community. Yeah. Yeah, dude, the the horizontal, like Dan Dan mentioned that that just that word, the horizontal aspect of the faith is so apparent. If you do a project like we've done and just sort of do a blast read through the epistles, it's just it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So anyway, in the suffering witness theme, so far we have that we are God's representatives and we are the way we suffer tells a story about that God. Absolutely. And one of Peter's main concerns is that he says, make sure your response flows not from any story, but from the Christian story. Like your response ah, to suffering cool. should be distinctively Christian. There is a distinctively hmm. Christian story that we are living. And man, make sure the way that you respond to suffering flows out of that one. Otherwise, you're going to misrepresent yeah. God. And so he'll say, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your deeds and glorify God. Hmm. And so part of what this is, is the Christians being persecuted for things that they just don't really deserve to be persecuted for. Like, they're just being Christians. And frankly, like, you know, us on this podcast can probably agree, like, we think that's the means to human flourishing. These Christians are mm -hmm. probably being, you know, fairly awesome people to some degree. We can, you know, maybe argue that. But obviously, the, the pagans in the culture are not a fan. So, these Christians are being, you know, persecuted. They're experiencing some social, economic, even, you know, physical hostility. And part of what Peter is saying is when you respond to evil with love, when you respond to evil with blessing, you expose evil for what it is, for like what an outrage it actually is. When you respond to evil with love, you put it to shame, you break its power. And this is actually a lot of what's happening on the cross with Jesus, or at least it's one way of understanding what's happening on the cross with Jesus. It's kind of one facet of crucifixion is that Jesus is putting evil to shame because evil is crucifying an innocent man and the world sees, wow, that is horrific. It, it exposes evil. And mm. so, he'll say, keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. This is kind of one of the, the main themes of evil's defeat throughout scripture. 
And so mm. when the world sees acts of violence, acts of sin on, on a grand scale, it generally recognizes them for what they are. And in a world kind of bent towards justice will condemn it, I guess, is, is maybe the best way to put it. Yeah. I feel like I'm not in your head, you know, but it's like, I wonder if part of the difficulty in closing the loop of that argument is it feels pretty idealistic, you know, as, as you're talking about it, it's like, yeah, that, that seems like if I was writing a story, that would be a, a great way for the world to work, you know, is that even when bad things happen to you or when you're punished unjustly, you just continue to live rightly. You know, you just continue to live righteously and continue to bless and continue to love and things will work out for you. But I guess when I look at how the world works, it doesn't always, it's not always that fast. It's not always that clean. Even if it's the right thing to do, even if it's actually the right way to go, you might not feel the arc bending toward justice in that moment. It might be, you might be part of that process, but it might not actually happen in your, <laughs> in a cause effect relationship. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. And I do think Peter is both an idealist and a realist. And I think part of the reason for that is, you know, because we believe that Jesus is the son of God sitting at the right hand of the father, like there are elements of an idealistic worldview that are actually true. Like even in their most ideal form are still true. But Peter is mm -hmm. also very in tune with reality. Like people are dying and being thrown in prison because of this ethic. Yeah. Like this ethic is leading to people dying and being thrown in prison. And so Peter knows this isn't trivial. Like this isn't like some quaint little saying that he's, you know, like, oh, just, you know, be good when people are mean to you. It'll be fine. Like he, he knows what's up. Yeah. And he understands too that like he'll say in chapter four, now who's going to harm you if you're eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So he's like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like you say, like, as a rule, if you're doing good, if you're living as sort of a good citizen, if you are, you know, loving your neighbors and just not being a jerk, then probably people should be okay with you, you know? And more than likely will be, but not and always. more than likely will be. But yeah, still, pe people might not like it and people not like might not like what you believe or whatever it is. And so you might still get wrecked. You know, <laughs> you still might get you just jacked up by evil. Yeah, that is interesting. I don't know if I've connected those two dots before of like saying in the same breath or at both sides of your mouth saying like what you can control is that you are living rightly and you're living well. And that should, you know, make you a good citizen. People probably will respect that, but they also might not. And so you might suffer for it. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I guess that's a really interesting point. Yeah, this idealism and realism in the same breath. And, you know, this is highly pragmatic at the same time. Like it's idealist. He's living in a world of realism. And it's also pragmatic mm -hmm. in the sense he's like, look, if you don't do anything wrong, your oppressors are not going to have anything to hold against you. He'll say, by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you're not being obnoxious and annoying and giving you reasons for the world to hate you, then they probably won't hate you and yeah. you will probably suffer a whole lot less. On the flip side of that, even if you're doing awesome and you're this incredible member of society, we live in a fallen world. Things don't always work out perfectly. And that's why he can say, like, even if yeah. you suffer for doing what's right, you're blessed. Peter has this hope in mind. He really, mm. you know, we talked about it last uh, two weeks yeah. ago with Dan. There is this future hope that is really grounding him. He seriously believes, like, God is going to, even the score is a bad way to put it, but God is going to act justly in the end. Mm -hmm. You know, in chapter two, he's going to ground a lot of his conviction in returning suffering with good 
in Jesus before Pilate. And he's going to say, look, Jesus before Pilate, he didn't retaliate. He didn't threaten. He didn't return insult for insult or, or, you know, strike for strike. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So even when you do good Mm. and you are beaten in return for it, know that God sees that. Know that God will judge justly. Yeah. Gosh, that is interesting. It is crystallizing for me a little bit in just talking about it in that essentially he's saying, yeah, when you suffer in this totally unjust way, when you're not being a jerk and you end up suffering, you still have to suffer well. You know, that's probably the moment when you want to lash out and be like, I did not do anything wrong. And he's telling them, no, no, no. But like, you're going to tell a very powerful story by the way you suffer for not doing anything wrong. I, I think what strikes me is how on some level, like as an abstract idea, this is a, a, a nice one to me. But if you were to tell me to do it in a moment when I was feeling unjustly punished for something, it sounds mean. It sounds harsh. And it sounds like something I don't want to do. And specifically, if you were to tell me on some level that, hey, like your response to this is going to be a part of a grand constellation of people seeing Christians responding in this way. You know, there's a collective identity in that. There's like a collective Christian response in that, that it seems like Peter must be arguing. It's like the way that y'all respond to this is going to tell a powerful story about Jesus, which must be made up of individual responses. But like each individual response might not yield a, you know, total exposure of evil. Mm-hmm. But in the in the aggregate, in all of you sort of living this way, it will tell a very powerful story about what evil can do to this community and and it'll expose evil, right? And so the idea that I am supposed to, I I just think, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but just this deep individualism of the West or maybe just, you know, America, whatever it is, or me, I'll just put it that way. Like the deep individualism that's just in my roots just has a hard time thinking about the sort of collective ethic argument of this, where it's like, you actually might die for this. And on the whole, on the aggregate for the world and for the Jesus movement, that's a good thing. I don't know if I'm overstating the case. Stanford, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that God sees things on a more collective and generational scale, right? And so he's saying, God often says everything's going to be okay, but maybe not for you. Yeah, see, that's so hard to wrap my mind around. It feels like everything should be okay. Feels like what I've internalized is like there are ways, like there are formulas for you to live into where it's like, if you just do this, it'll work out. And that's just not, Mm -hmm. doesn't seem like what it's saying. And I think a lot of the scripture and, you know, the wisdom literature is about this is basically the way the world works. You basically do these things. You know, there's a high correlation, like an R squared of Mm 0.8 that, you know, you're going to live into flourishing. Mm -hmm. But if you stand for a God of holiness, you are going to run into some opposition and that could get ugly. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, if you stand for a God of justice, you're going to run into some opposition and that could get ugly. And because we live on a, you know, billion year scale, Peter doesn't really have much trouble kind of brushing over that fact. Right. You know, my imagination and my consciousness is just not as gripped with the billion year scale as Peter's. Yeah. But the other thing I think about it is that this is one of the things that's really unique about Christianity is what uh, Jurgen Moltmann would call the solidarity of the suffering God, right? That Christian's talking about Peter's realism. But the kind of the stark realism of the New Testament grounded in, you know, the incarnate God coming and kind of asking the world to do its worst to him mm-hmm. is that, you know, God just never asks us to stand under something that God was not willing to stand under. And it's like, it's not a solution to it. It doesn't really 
make everything better, but it does make it easier to swallow. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like Peter is deeply connected to the Jesus story. He's using that as an example that like you're being told to suffer essentially by the one who did it, you know, the one who also went through it and he's not delegating the suffering. (laughs) You know, it's like, well, you guys all suffer. I'll be fine by myself. He's entering in. And I do think that matters. And I think it takes that a step further. And so does Paul and says, you know, this is a way to know God. You know, we talked about that lovely Philippians verse about knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right. And Uh we think about that as like, you know, having a peaceful, like meaningful Bible study or, you know, singing worship songs or whatever. And I think Paul and Peter are like, no, I think like suffering for the holiness and justice of God is part of knowing Christ is your Lord because that's what Jesus chose to experience. Mm -hmm. So, Peter has this really interesting caution that he gives us four times in this letter. And this letter is five chapters. It's like three pages. He has to say four separate times, hey, it's Mm. better to not suffer for doing wrong. You know, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a criminal or even a mischief maker. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of nonsense. Like seems like a throwaway, right? It seems like that's just something you read over. You're like, yeah, duh. Duh. Don't get the death penalty because you murdered somebody. That's bad. God doesn't (laughs) like that. It's like, yeah, of course. But I think the reason he is bringing this up is because when your worldview lends itself towards understanding like spiritual evil kind of coalescing against you and persecution kind of happening because of your faith, because of the things that you are standing up for, because of the justice that you're standing up for, that worldview has a failure mode. And that failure mode is interpreting all persecution, all hostility, all social disapproval as persecution because I am doing the right thing. And Peter is really Hmm. careful to say, hold on, you need to do some self-reflection you need to make sure you mm. are not suffering just because you're being a jerk and just because you're being mm-hmm, terrible yeah. to society. Like you need to make sure you're suffering for mm-hmm. the right thing. And he says it four different times. I mean, I can't, I can't mm-hmm, even impress. Like, it struck me how frequent and how important this is to him. Because I think, you know, one of the things that you'll see in, you know, if you open the book of Revelation is the churches are not doing so hot. And they're not doing so hot because they're being so aggressively persecuted. They're not doing so hot because they have totally acquiesced into Roman society and have sold themselves over to you know Roman imperialism and the Roman economic system and stuff. And so they are suffering in many ways because they have started to do wrong, not because they're standing up for the faith. Right. That's great. I can sort of see this being licensed for anyone who's receiving any sort of negative feedback for their particular brand of Christianity saying, well, I'm on the right track. I'm being persecuted. People don't like me. And it's like, oh, hold on. They might not like you because you're not very likable. They might not like you because you're <laughs> because you're not being you're being a, a bum. You're being a, bu- a butthole, you know. Um, yeah. Can we say that on this podcast? Uh, <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, we own we own rights. Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. Gosh, it's so interesting. Anyway, so I'll stop myself. But yeah, so he's saying there are suffering that is just because you're not being good. You know, you're not being righteous. You're being a jerk. And then there's suffering that's unjust because you are you're not being that way. And they're literally just persecuting you because of the faith that you hold, the ethic that you live by. Gosh, that's good. That's so good, man. Yeah, I feel like this is something that it took me a while to get a hold of. I was never really taught this, but you need to be able to triage social disapproval, right? Mm -hmm. Like the scriptures tell us to expect social disapproval and kind of be courageous about it, you know, not to be Mm -hmm. swayed by social disapproval or, you know, even social hostility. And so there is this sense that, well, we should just kind of, you know, be courageous and stand up. 
But the scriptures also tell us to be self-skeptical and reflective and repentant and to recognize when we've done wrong. And so you have to triage social disapproval and say, is what I'm standing for right? And the hostility that I'm getting against this, you know, par for the course, just to the price of admission? Mm-hmm. Or am I being a knucklehead? We, we're trying to come up with as many different <laughs> synonyms that uh, <laughs> that are not offensive. Right. That Scott Wilson will have to bleep out. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it, and I just think that's important because, you know, there's a narrative right now that Christians have a persecution complex and see any social disapproval as anti-religious bias. Yeah. But we're also in a deeply post-Christian time where there is a lot of anti-religious bias. And both those things are true, and you need to be careful not to get caught up in either of the narratives, or you'll be someone who's terrible and thinks that everyone who's against you is against you because you're a Christian, or you'll kind of be a self-loathing Christian and think that everything that we believe is wrong because we get social disapproval. Just neither of those things are stable. You have to find the, the healthy place that Peter's pushing us to in the middle. Yeah. Stanford, I feel like one of the things that you've contributed to the the world of Christendom is your ability to see both sides of a thing like that. It makes it so crystal clear to me of like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's, so there's two sides. Let me see if I understand what you're saying a little bit, is that you're saying that in the world of social persecution, as a Christian experiencing it, you know, you might be experiencing persecution because, again, you're being a knucklehead and you're going to interpret that because maybe you're being a knucklehead and you're being brazen about things mm-hmm. of the faith, you know, you or are things adjacent to the faith or yeah, that yeah. you think are adjacent to the faith that sound like religious language to you and people don't mm-hmm. like it and they're lashing out. You might be thinking, oh, this is religious persecution, which then makes you think I'm on the right track, which then makes you think I should keep doing this, which then makes you think I should double down. And mm-hmm. it's sort of a skeptical hypothesis. It's like it can't be mm-hmm. disproven. Nothing could show you that you're doing the wrong thing because everything negative that is happening to you is proof to you that you're doing the right thing. So that's one side of it, which seems pretty dangerous. And then there's the other side where there is actually religious persecution. You know, there's people who don't like the teachings of Christianity or the ethic of Christianity. And so maybe you've adopted this idea like, oh, everything that we believe is is wrong. Everything we believe is um, socially destructive. Or yeah, socially the, destructive. The church yeah. is at the root of, you know, all the ills of our culture, you know. And, and I just think that, you know, I'm not sure that I could call any social disapproval I've run into persecution. But like, I think that, you know, in any standard university, students are going to run into social disapproval and, Mm -hmm. you know, just real like ideological pushback on their faith. And that's part of the strengthening process. That's part of, you know, why it's good to go to a university like this is to learn to build those muscles of either repentance or, you know, courage and sometimes both. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting? I think when I've talked to students about the idea of persecution, I feel like the thing that I hear the most from them is that they don't like the insinuation that they are dumb or mm-hmm. that they're not thinking people for being Christians. I think I feel like that's the thing that I hear the most of in terms of what could be classified as sort of maybe even a prejudice that feels like persecution. Isn't that interesting? Sort of like in this particular context, almost the worst thing you could be is someone who doesn't think about what they believe, Mm -hmm. you know, and the the insinuation that Christians don't or haven't feels very nasty to, I think, students that I've talked to, you know? Yeah. And I think one of the challenges of this letter is we do live in a very different time from First Peter, like the rate and the intensity of quote unquote persecution is miles different from what it was, you know, in Mm -hmm. in 60 AD. Mm -hmm. So how do we apply this to today? And we are not persecuted in the same way, but there is such a thing as, as social disapproval in our culture, especially in a university setting. 
I think that's probably the hot spot mm-hmm. for Christian social disapproval, especially in a town that mm-hmm. is, you know, wildly left wing like Davis is. This is the kind of place where we experience those sorts of things to a limited degree. And we need to be really careful with how we use that language. But I think in summary of the suffering witness theme is like, how do we respond to, you know, social disapproval? Like if you're, you know, a UC Davis student, how do you respond to social disapproval? You keep your conduct pure and humble. Give mm-hmm. people no reason to accuse you of anything. None. Respond to evil with love. When you do experience mm-hmm. social disapproval, make them tacos. Nobody can hate you if you make them tacos. It's just, it's just <laughs> I missed that verse. I'll go <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll go look for that one. I mean, yeah. Sanford, it's all over. It's easily the most quoted yeah. verse in the New Testament. Yeah. And then the third thing is, you know, self-reflect on the reasons why you're suffering. Make sure you are suffering for the right reasons. If you mm-hmm. ever think to cry persecution or say, oh, it's just because I'm a Christian, you know, they have a bias against me. Like, do some serious self-examination before you make that claim. And you mm-hmm. can make it. You can move forward with it. But you need to be very, very careful with it. And the question yeah. of why should we respond to suffering? And it's like, why do all of that? The first is that it witnesses to God's own nature. The second is that it, you know, it exposes evil for what it is. It shames it. It disarms it. The third is that pragmatically, you'll probably just reduce the suffering you experience. And the fourth is mm-hmm. there's a future hope that God's going to judge justly when the time comes. Yeah. And I feel like even the question of why should we do this, it insinuates this is a harder. This will fight your natural instinct. This is something that has to be formed in you. It's not totally self-evident that it's the best thing to do. I feel like we could talk about this forever. You know, I think it's it really is so interesting because it's like I do think that there's a certain sense that it's like you might reach an ideological and even ethical impasse with, you know, a particular person who might be against you or against what Christians think. You might actually disagree, you know? And I think that's even the moment we're talking about. It's like by being a Christian, it's gonna be countercultural, it's gonna be subversive, right? Because like every culture has things that sort of Christians will want to live differently than, you know, because no culture is the kingdom of God. And so it's going to be things that we sort of are convicted that this is just not the way to flourishing. And so that might result in an impasse where it's like, we just fundamentally think that the flourishing is something else. And I guess the way that you handle that impasse, you don't have to be a jerk about it, even though you disagree, you know, you can do that nicely. You know, you can say, I'm not, I'm not going to destroy you. Like, I don't need to destroy you to, I don't know, secure it. And not only am yeah. I not going to destroy you, but I'm going to actually love you in return. All right. Um, well, Christian, what, when you were moving on to another category, when you were reading First Peter, what was it that you were reading and something stopped you in your tracks and you said, uh, excuse me, what? Well, let me tell you, Peter, this category is brilliant because it happens all the time to all of us and happens to it me. Does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for, for First Peter, I mean, literally this flows out of like the passages we were just talking about. And Peter's going to say in chapter two, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Mm. That's hard to read. Like, that's hard to make yeah. any sense of at all. <laughs> Excuse me, what? Excuse me, what? what? Tell us why you were in a state of confusion or like what the heck to do with that. Yeah, we're talking about a group of people who are persecuted, being persecuted at some level by the state. And Peter's saying, submit to him. Just follow. And, you know, this is Nero we're talking about. Like, like Nero's a bad dude. And like most of the Roman emperors at this point are bad dudes. Like, this is not some like, really awesome government that Peter's like, hey, look, they're doing a really good job. Just like submit to them, you know, do what they tell you. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Like these are horrible, horrible people that are ruling these horrible, horrible empires. And Peter's saying, look, submit to them for the Lord's sake. 
that's really confusing. And there's a lot of tension oh, with yeah. this and other points of scripture. Like I've been doing a lot of thinking on Revelation lately, uh, doing a lot of writing on it. And one of Revelation's big calls to the church is to be critical, to speak out against injustice where it is, and to witness to Yahweh as, as Lord on the throne, not Nero, not Caesar. Mm-hmm. Sort of the speak truth to power. Yes, kind speak of truth to power. Yeah. But it feels like First Peter is exactly the opposite of that. It feels like yeah, Peter is just saying, look, just keep your head down. Don't cause any trouble. It's fine. Gosh. God will deal with it. Don't worry about it. And that feels totally, totally wrong. It feels like there's a huge contradiction. But I think I found a few points of contact between these two, these two ideas. Mm. In Revelation, the way that evil is to be critiqued is to expose it for what it is, to suffer, to let evil kind of bear down on you and to be what it is, and then to just love and return, to show the absurdity of it, to disarm it completely, to take away all its power. When you do that, you absorb evil. And when you return love, you put evil out of currency. Hmm. So that's the method, that's the mechanism by which Revelation calls the church to speak out. And in First Peter, he's saying, hey, just like submit, let evil do its thing, you know, suffer well. And in doing so, you're going to expose it for what it is. So they're kind of playing on two sides of the same coin. Yeah, Revelation yeah. is kind of taking the critical side and saying, here's the mechanism. And Peter is saying, here is the suffering side and here is the mechanism and they meet in the middle. there. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about in Revelation, I don't remember exactly the setup to punchline or whatever, but they are searching for the lion, right? And then, oh, there's the lamb. <laughs> you know, it's like, where, where's lion? Where's lion? Where's lion? There it is essentially. And it's like, it turns out actually, no, it's the lamb. Like you're sort of maybe expecting this fierce, ferocious, conquering critical, like, let's overthrow this thing. And then actually, when you see, actually, no, we are going to critique it, but we're going to critique it as the lamb, not the lion, right? That's my absolute favorite chapter in, I think, the entire Bible. Really? How did you feel about my off the top of my head uh, nonsense? Oh, it was great. It was great. (laughs) Yeah, I I actually think that Revelation chapter five, the lion and the lamb vision is the interpretive key both to Revelation and frankly, to the entirety of the New Testament. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that's maybe, maybe even the Old Testament. It's a bold, it's a bold claim. And I'll probably have many other passages that I would say the exact same thing about, but right now it's my favorite. But it's yeah. sublime. Yeah. Well, I have about a million questions about this submit to authorities thing. Because even as I was thinking, it's like this, like you said, like this is Nero, this is a bad dude. Like this isn't even like an elected official in whom, you know, your nation has voted for. This is someone who's just has in his mind divine right to rule you and persecute you as he wills and as he wishes. And we're being asked to submit to the Lord's sake to every human authority. Like, I have a million questions. What does it mean to submit? What does this mean for civil disobedience? What does this mean for do we always do every single letter of the law? Like, I, I'm sure you've, in your excuse me, wedding of this passage, you've thought a little bit of these things. So do you have these same questions? Absolutely. So one of the first things to note is that later in this passage, Peter's going to say that the church is free. They're free to submit. And he's saying like, this is a voluntary submission as is appropriate. It's not some kind of universal moral law that we have to follow the laws of our government. Otherwise, it's sin. Yeah. Now, this isn't like a super controversial take. Right. You know, this, this is no hot take on this. But I do think we make a mistake when we assume that the point of this passage is that it's about God's will for us to always obey the government and always obey right. laws. Like the point here is that Peter wants you to be a good citizen. He wants you to contribute to human flourishing. And he wants you to be a law-abiding citizen insofar as that means contributing to human flourishing. He's saying like, don't be an anarchist. Be a peacemaker. 
You know, don't mm. use this newfound freedom that you have in mm. Christ to go say, oh, governments don't have anything on me. I'm a citizen of King Jesus. You're saying like, look, okay, yes, that's true. But like also just be a good person. Like, like don't go start fires in a re- revolution. That's not the point here. Mm. I think the important thing in the context is that in about five years, Jerusalem's going to get wiped out because of revolutionary ferment. I feel like revolution is kind of a, it's a word with positive connotation in our culture because we have inherited the kind of best possible outcome of revolutions in all of history in this country. And there's even a great musical about it. (laughs) But like, you know, Peter's concern is that there is a like political movement for revolution that like empirically went very, very poorly. And I think that he's saying, you know, be careful how much of like, your hope and effort you invest on the empire scale and you're know, pushing back on Nero. We're people who invest in the neighborhood scale, invest in the community scale. And, you know, again, kind of taking off this exile in Babylon theme that shows up in the first half of the book, very much like the advice that Jeremiah gave to the exiles in Babylon of this sucks, this government is oppressive, and uh, you're going to be agents for love and peace and justice in this city. Hmm. Absolutely. And so, when your ideal is human flourishing and not just obeying your government, there's room for Mm -hmm. civil disobedience. There's room for speaking out against the government when it's complicit in injustice. You know, people like Martin Luther King and the George Floyd protests and other, you know, other acts of civil disobedience. Like, Peter's not telling you to obey every law because Peter also got himself arrested, like, a lot. Mm -hmm. Like so many mm-hmm. times, like so many more times right. than any of us have ever been arrested. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm at zero, actually. I've never been arrested. Also yeah. zero. Yeah. Yeah. Stanford? I'm not going to disclose. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think Peter's point is like, look, be a good citizen, contribute to human flourishing. When your government is not contributing to human flourishing, speak out against it. Speak truth. And truth will always bend towards justice. I think one thing that I'm struggling with is who decides who's a good citizen. It sounds like what we're saying is sort of most of the time, go to the speed of traffic, you know, to do what people are doing, you know, and in that you will be deemed a good citizen by everyone. You know, people will see you as a good citizen, but then there might be times when the speed of traffic is too fast and the speed of traffic is too slow and you're going to have to go at a different pace, you know, to set the pace of what, what real justice is going to look like. And then you might not be thought of as a good citizen. So you know, like in the Martin Luther King thing, you know, if, if the law says that if you're black, you cannot sit at a lunch counter and eat lunch with white people, if that's what the law says, and then you say, that's just not right. And we know it's not right, but not everybody knows it's not right. So if we sort of live against that, we will not be seen as good citizens, you know? So I guess the question is like, who decides what's a good citizen? Is it sort of, it sounds like we're saying like, well, we obviously know that's not right. So you should just not obey that particular law. But most of the laws that, and I don't know if law is the right word, most of the social mores, you know, most of the norms that you would have to quote unquote break are not going to be, it's not always going to be a happy break, you know? Yeah, I I think the revolutionary context is really important here because this isn't about social mores. It's not even about the speed limit, although I think that's wise. It's about, is your hope in regime change? Are you putting your hope in regime change Mm. at a scale that you can't affect? So he's saying, you know, mm. is your fundamental hope in overthrowing Nero? Because you know who comes after Nero? Yeah. Someone terrible, Diocletian, yeah. you know, like that scale is not getting better. The scale that that you can affect is this local community scale. And so, you know, 
be part of the community. You know, there's another movement, the Essenes, where they just kind of removed themselves from society and tried to create these holy cloisters. And he's saying, we're a people within a people. And so mm. we want to live in that people as much as we can. But you know, when it came right down to it, Peter says to the magistrate, you, know, you decide for yourself if we should obey you or obey God. Yeah. And so when the rubber hits the road on issues that are kind of clear within our ethic, then you know, we, we have to take the stance we have to take. Yeah. I don't know if I'll be able to do this in words, but there's this video of Harry Connick Jr. <laughs> playing jazz. And uh, I can't wait to hear where this is going. I know, I know. Isn't that a ridiculous start to this? Of Harry Connick Jr. playing jazz and the crowd is like clapping along and then they all collectively get off rhythm, off beat or whatever. <laughs> and instead of sort of chastising them for that, he just really sort of expertly, and I don't know enough to know exactly what he does, but he just adds a beat in one measure mm. and, and just like changes the time signature for a little bit to get everyone back on the right track. And you can see the band behind him just going nuts with like, this is unbelievable what you just pulled off. And it feels sort of like that, right? It's like, we're going to be playing music and it's going to be, you know, in time with culture, be with everyone, be in this culture. And every once in a while, you're going to be playing the right notes and people will be off, you know, culture will be off. And instead of sort of overthrowing it, what you can do is act creatively and kindly, and you can sort of bring people along with you. You know what I mean? So instead of stopping and saying, how could you be so off? You know, mm -hmm. it's just sort of changing and, and shifting it so that we're back on the same page again. I don't know exactly if that works. But anyway, Harry Connick Jr., what do you think about that? Well, jazz musician. You know, when yeah. you brought up that name, I got him confused with a comedian named Harry something. And I was like, wow, Harry Connick Jr. is a really great comedian. And he plays saxophone yeah. like this? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So I, I love the idea of is your hope in regime change? Like you think, okay, things are bad right now and things are unjust. And once we get the new leader in, it won't be unjust anymore. It's sort of like, what is it? The doors or the who? That's like the old boss, the same as the new boss, or whatever. New boss, same as the old boss. It feels sort of similar to, to that. Again, a couple of these things, I feel like we could do a whole conversation just about <laughs> that particular point. So let's move on to uh, metaphor hold knowledge. Hold on, hold on, and, hold on, um, Peter. You've been reading the Bible, right? Like, I, I assume that we have both been reading the Bible. You understand that there are more things to say, excuse me, what, about than just one thing. So I'm That's hijacking true. this conversation. We are doing two excuse me what's right now because there's another one that we need to talk about. It's a first. It's a first. I, I'm taking control of this podcast. This is, this is my podcast. Now. Of course. Yeah. If anyone was going to do two excuse me what's, I feel like you would be a good candidate. Welcome That's to right. uh, your pod and your staff, the podcast of uh, College Life Christian Fellowship UC Davis. I'm your host, Christian Wingate. All right. Lay it on us. What do you got? Excuse me what us. All right. Chapter three, verse 13 through 22. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good one. <laughs> yeah. 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 That one. This isn't just the first Peter, excuse me, what? In my opinion, this is the excuse me, what? Of the entire Bible. <laughs> he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Seems perfectly clear to me. I don't understand the confusion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient <laughs> long ago. Like, 
what <laughs> what why peter it was so, his letter was so understandable up to this point and right. now yeah where have you gone why yeah and it's crazy because you're saying part- christian you want to say that paul is more complicated than <laughs> yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold my beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so look, he, here's the main idea. Regardless of what you think about the imprisoned spirits and stuff, the actual I, main idea behind this passage is pretty straightforward. Just as Jesus suffered and was vindicated, so too will all of you suffering churches be vindicated. That's the main point here. That's so right. we don't have to get into the weeds, but we're going to anyways, because this is a podcast and that's what we do. Okay, so Stanford's going to pitch this idea that this passage is totally indecipherable. And I think that is a totally plausible way of understanding it. There's a few different ways to read it. That is a really good one, frankly. So Stanford's idea is that it's just indecipherable. It's just there. Well, okay, let me, let me, okay, yeah. let me make my case. <laughs> I think that it's completely possible that there are texts that are no longer available to us, that we just don't have everything we need to you know, fully nail down what they mean theologically. I think that there's some mystery in the text, and I think that we should be comfortable with some mystery in the text. However, I do think that Christian's explanation is the most plausible. Yeah. So, so here's one option for understanding this passage. So, just as a couple of quick notes, like the verb proclaim here is not the same verb as to evangelize, meaning Jesus is probably not proclaiming the gospel to people in hell so that they can be saved. This is like not like a first chance of hearing the gospel for like Old Testament people who have died and like gone to hell or the realm of the dead, whatever you want to call it, um, so that they can be saved. Because the language of spirits almost always means angels or demons or spiritual beings. It re- pretty much never, ever means people. Those are kind of two things that we're working with. And so here's kind of the hypothesis is that this passage is being drawn from a, uh, an intertestamental apocryphal book called First Enoch, chapters 12 through 14. A lot of words that are tough to know right there. <laughs> a lot of words. A lot right, of words. Christian, yeah. so uh, I've spent a little time in the Old Testament, and um, I have missed not only Second Enoch, but the first one. Can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about what this text is? So First uh, Enoch was a book written by Jewish people sometime shortly before Jesus, kind of in the period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The book gets its name from Enoch, who, if you remember from Genesis 5, I think it was. Walks with God. He's the seventh patriarch from Adam. He's the seventh like kind of descendant of Adam. And Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Great. like, first of all. Tough look for my guy, Enoch. <laughs> excuse me, what? Excuse me, <laughs> what? It's like, excuse me, what, three? Yeah. But... That, that's all we know about Enoch. That's literally all the information in scripture on Enoch. But that didn't stop a bunch of people in shortly before Jesus' time saying, man, we need someone to, to write about. Like, this guy's curious. Let's do some thinking about, you know, about Enoch. And first, Enoch is this collection of stories written millennia later from Enoch's perspective about these journeys he takes. And it's apocalyptic literature. So it reads like Revelation or like parts mm-hmm. of Daniel. It's got these wild images and it's all about the spiritual realm. It's Genesis fan fiction is what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah right. I say, yeah. Yeah. Also known as Midrash, but that's not yeah. a word that people use. So <laughs> yeah. we'll go with fan fiction. I prefer Genesis fan fiction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the book of First Enoch, these, these couple of chapters here, 12 through 14, it recounts this story of Enoch traveling to the realm of the dead and he meets these imprisoned spirits there. And these spirits are what are called the sons of God from Genesis 6. These sons of God go down and sleep with human women. They create these kind of weird offspring. And this is all kind of tied into the flood narrative, but it's about these rebellious spiritual beings. And so 
God tells Enoch to go and declare his wrath and his judgment against these rebellious spirits from Noah's time. Why does all that matter? Peter is probably, this is the plausible explanation at least, Peter is drawing on the story of Enoch that he knows and has read as a type. A type is this way of seeing something as a foreshadowing of Jesus where like the thing happens and then Jesus comes and he's kind of the greater fulfillment of the thing. And so Peter is going to to show Jesus to be the one who goes to these imprisoned spirits to declare God's final victory and final judgment and the complete victory of God over them. Hmm. That's kind of how Peter is using this language. That's why Noah is getting brought up in all this. That's why there's these imprisoned spirits. And it's really cool. It's super interesting. It's Peter utilizing some writings of his day that were fairly well known to people in his milieu as a way of explaining who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So if you're not convinced by this and and are maybe feeling a little bit antsy about the fact that Peter might be drawing on non-scriptural works in his writings, that's okay. But do know this, 2 Peter and Jude both quote 1 Enoch verbatim, like a huge chunk of it, word for word. So undoubtedly, 1 Enoch is already quoted in scripture. And so the argument here is that it's also being used in 1 Peter as well. And regardless of whether you count 1 Enoch as inspired scripture and like the only Christian groups that actually do count it as scripture are um, some Ethiopian sects of Eastern Orthodoxy. The Catholic Church and the kind of mainstream Eastern Orthodox Church don't count it as canon either. But, you know, even if you don't count it as inspired scripture, clearly the biblical authors thought it was useful and they interacted with it too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this story may not be true, like it's an apocalyptic vision, but that doesn't mean it's not helpful and that the the writers didn't see it as another way of portraying who Jesus is. Hmm. And I mean, Paul quotes Greek poetry when he finds it useful. The New Testament and Old Testament authors draw wisdom from the literature of their day when they think it's useful. And I think that one thing that's pretty clear, we talked about it last week, and we see it again in Peter, is that you know Peter has a cosmology that is bigger than humans. Peter has a cosmology where he recognizes that we're not God's only story. God has other stories of creation and interacting with created beings, which is part of why I think this is a pretty mysterious verse is because actually, we don't actually know how many stories God is telling. We may find that we're God's fifth children, right? But the redemption event of Jesus Christ was a redemption event that interacted with multiple stories. And here we're just getting a little glimpse of one of the other ones. And I think one of my favorite things about First Enoch, these chapters are really, really interesting. They're really cool and fun to read. Like this reads like crazy fiction. And because it's actually got like a bit of a narrative to it, even more so than like maybe Revelation does. And it's got one of the coolest throne room visions in like all of Judeo-Christian writings. Enoch walks into kind of this heavenly space and God is in this house made of fire. The walls are made of fire. The floor is made of fire. The stairs are made of fire. There's fire angels all around. And God is sitting in the middle of it on this throne made of ice. That's cool. And it's like the coolest vision ever. You can just feel he's like desperately grabbing for words to explain something that is totally ineffable. That's right. You can feel that tension. It's awesome. So go read, go read first Enoch. It's great. 
Corn, that's your quarantine corner. <laughs> quarantine first corner. Yeah. Um, all right. Is it time to, to get to metaphor knowledge? Is it agreeable to you, Christian? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So metaphor knowledge, obviously there's metaphors throughout these texts and often they can help us. Well, they're, they're being used, they're being utilized. They can, they can help us understand what's going on. So uh, Christian, any, any metaphor knowledge in the first Peter? Dude, Peter loves metaphors and more than metaphors, he loves rocks. <laughs> and who doesn't? I yeah. mean, come on. This is Let's the run. passage for GL, just Christians everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely it is, Stanford. I speak from experience. <laughs> <laughs> so so Peter's name means rock, and he just loves rock metaphors. So he's going to say in chapter two, he says, as you come to him, the living stone, being Jesus, mm-hmm. rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A lot of stones, a lot of stonework. Peter likes rocks. Yeah. So this is really cool. Peter does a lot of theological groundwork here and really like just pulls who Christians are into this huge theme of God's dwelling place in creation. Mm. And so just kind of to, to walk that back a little bit. So- in Eden, like God is dwelling with his people, his image bearers in creation, kind of permeating all of creation. After the fall, God's ability to dwell with his people is limited through sin. So he's dwelling in the tabernacle now, and it's kind of a hot spot of God's presence, but outside of it, he's, he's not quite there. And after the tabernacle, he dwells in the temple. And after the temple is destroyed, the people are wondering if God has left them because God's presence has left the geography. Right. And Jesus then shows up. And he claims to be the embodiment of the temple. Like John says that God literally tabernacled inside of him. Yeah. And so Jesus is this, you know, radical reinterpretation of what God's presence dwelling with humanity means. And post-resurrection, the coming of the spirit, God dwells inside his people. We become like these mini temples, but actually we become like these stones to the temple because Peter is going to say, we are all living stones that comprise this larger temple of the church, of God's people, and Jesus is the cornerstone. And so God's dwelling place becomes again what it always should have been. His dwelling place is the people who bear his image. Hmm. I love this because I feel like this is like crazy sci-fi stuff. If you try to imagine this, like if you try to draw this, it would be bananas. But I do like the idea of like... I'm kind of a rock in the temple. I'm a rock in God's house, yeah. which means, hey, you know what? I'm super important, but it also means I'm approximately as important as everyone else who's a rock in God's house. And I feel like that emerges out of the like holy priesthood, you know, chosen nation, the, these like these corporate metaphors, because there's this sense in which, yeah, you're a priest in God's house, but y- you know who else is? Everyone, <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's this sense in which there's this leveling. It's not a kind of Incredibles thing that if everyone's special, no one is. It's that everyone is brought up to the level of being the building blocks of God's house. And I just love this image. Also, I love rocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is your thesis. I, I think the connection with this temple language and then calling the new people like a royal priesthood, I think that it always just it grabs my attention, you know, and, and to think about who the priests were in, you know, back when the temple and the tabernacle were a thing. It's like these are sort of the, the chosen ones who get to be in the presence of God. These are the ones who get to go into the, you know, some of them, holy of holies. These are the ones who get to get closer and closer and closer to God's presence. You know, back in times when it was Israel, like this, again, like this was a select group of people. 
you know, the Levites and stuff, the priests. And so now it's like, no, anyone who bears the name of Jesus is a, is one of those, (laughs) you know, it's like, I wish that I could feel that. I think that's what I feel. It's like the experience of like, I wish I could rewatch something for the first time. You know, I wish I could have the emotional experience of knowing what it meant to be a priest and then hearing the words of actually now you are one of these people. This is you now and everyone else, you know, and I think that we live in this time, obviously, when the physical reality of God's presence is less important to us. I think we love the idea that God is, you know, in in all of us, you know, it's like it's this sort of this elusiveness to God's presence, even though it's tangible in, in our being. But it's like, I sort of long for the time when it was like, you could go, you know, you could pull right. up and, and be like, I am feeling distant and I would love to be in God's presence now, you know? And it's weird because now it's like, I think we're in a more enviable position, but I, I do sort of long for that physical experience of God's presence, you know, again, pulling up in a parking spot and, uh, and just getting to be in it. Because of that, I wish that I could feel how great it is that we are the temple of God, you know? I feel like it would be like saying, Peter Nettler, you are a Golden State warrior. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, like this thing that you've always admired and, you know, felt this real sense of connection and passion around. Now you're on the team. Oh, but also, so Stanford. Yeah. Steph Curry (laughs) brought you into the Golden State Warriors. Right. And and I guess the metaphor does break down because it's like, well, if you're telling me I'm on the Warriors, that's just a almost a linguistic trick. You know, it's like I could be on the Warriors, but I'm not playing, you know? And I think what this is saying is like, no, you're on the Warriors and suddenly you're made talented enough to be on the Warriors. Yeah. And so is everyone (laughs) else, you know? And obviously this is getting to be ridiculous. We have one team of a billion people or billions of people, whatever. But I think that's what sometimes it feels like. It's just like what you said. It's like, sometimes it's just like, yeah, you're, you know, Royal Priesthood. You're on the Warriors. Yeah, Yeah, you get a sticker, you get a jersey, but are you really on the Warriors? You know, are you really on there if you're not actually competing and you're not actually good enough? You know, it's sort of like you're just brought in by default or whatever. And it's like Peter's saying, no, 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 you are something real and legitimate. And this is where God's presence dwells is in you now. This is like, you're in the playoffs now, kid. Like you're you're going for it. So I don't know. That makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know if that quite makes sense to everyone, but it's not just a default theological understanding or some idea. Like, I think Peter means this to be quite significant, you know? And I think maybe that's just what I feel. I want to feel the significance of it. You know, I think sometimes it feels like a cool theological idea and I want to, and I long for it to feel like real true, you know, but I do love the temple imagery. I think it's awesome. All right. Well then let's move to our last quarantine corner of the quarter. Stanford, you have the floor. Why don't you take it away? All right. So, uh, I travel a lot for work, which I don't anymore, but we'll get to that. So, yeah, you know, I just really hate being away from my family, but I love traveling for work. And yeah. so it's this real tension in my life. I love that right now I'm not traveling for work because I'm just with my family all the time. Like literally they're going to school in my house. Right. And I just love that. There's no downside of that. But I do miss traveling. I like seeing the world. I like calibrating my reality to lots of different places. I love exploring. It just traveling is curiosity incarnate. And so what I've been doing is I've been um, getting travel guides from the library. Now, I know that, yes, I know that TripAdvisor exists. I'm going to say <laughs> that the best way to travel is to go to the places where no one else goes. And right now, a IRL travel guide is not how people decide where to go. They go to TripAdvisor. That's so true. like a travel guide will actually take you to great places that not everyone else is going to. That's, that's free. <laughs> so what I'm doing is I got a travel guide to Patagonia. I got one to Indonesia. Am I going to 
to these places? No, I'm not. But I am just really <laughs> delighting in these kind of virtual travel experiences of uh, planning these trips to take Al- Alethea on when she turns 16. And it's been a lot of fun and is very affordable. <laughs> very affordable. What, can I at, at what time of the day does that happen? So I pray and sing and uh, and badly and uh, (laughs) chat with the girls at night. And Amanda prays and sings and uh, chats with Xavier at night. And so and then we go to bed immediately because we're old and tired. But like often I'll get to bed before she does. She's better at singing and chatting. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got a few minutes there. I see that. So you poke through the book. Do you actually write down an itinerary? No, no, no. But uh, it's in my head now. I know that I want to take Alethea to see the Komodo dragons and the orangutans when yeah. she's 16. That's cool. I love that. Stanford, I, uh, I occasionally use Google Earth for my work. And the other day I was on Google Earth and I was like, I just had this moment of like, I wonder what Mount Everest looks like on Google Earth. So I typed <laughs> it in and they were like, oh, do you want to take like the walking tour of base camp up to yeah, Mount Everest? Nice. And I was like, yes, I do. Yeah, I'm yes, at I work, do. but that's not important right now. What I want to do is see <laughs> Mount Everest. And there's this like really cool, you can like, like do like a little photo tour of people walking kind of partway up to base camp. And it's so cool. So I feel like that yeah. was the virtual, the digital version of what you're telling us to do. That's right. But it's nice to not be on a screen just it before is. you go to bed. So yeah. this really works out. Yeah, that's awesome. My uh, quarantine corner right now, you can't see because you're all listening to me, but I'm wearing a Santa hat. And uh, I decided last year that I'm going Santa hat all Christmas season and I'm doing it again. It brings me a lot of joy. I was going to say my quarantine corner was going to be like, just like get into Christmas, like decorate for Christmas, just do something, put lights up, get a tree, get a teensy tiny tree, whatever you need to do. But I'm going to get a little more specific. I think that you should, all of you listening, should make a freaking Christmas card. Take photographs of yourself and send them to the people you love. Mm-hmm. Okay, because hmm. a million reasons. Getting Christmas cards <laughs> is such a joy. They go up on our fridge and they live there. So yeah. send us a Christmas card if you do it. Then we'll put you on a fridge. You'll live there for a year. Mm-hmm. You'll be immortalized. Two, it's like an artifact. You can have one mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. It's like, this is my time in college. And then your parents, if you send them a Christmas card of you and your roommates from college, they will be so tickled with <laughs> delight and joy. They'll tell all their friends about it at their bridge groups, at their book clubs at their, you know, cocktail parties, all Zoom, of course. Mm-hmm. You won't even really have to buy them an expensive present. That will do most of the Christmas cheer and most of the Christmas goodwill. That's my hypothesis, is that if you throw on some sort of Santa hat, you know, something, and, and take a Christmas card picture and send them to your parents, that'll be basically the Christmas present to them. I don't know if that's true, but I think it might be. So anyway, I think you should do a Christmas card and send them to us, 1366 Tyler Drive, Woodland, California, 95776. Boom. Quarantine corner. Peter just docks yeah. himself. <laughs> yeah. 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 Go ahead, Christian. So uh, my quarantine corner, I, I consider 2020 to be just a terrible year all around with one shining star in the middle of it. I found the best thing that has happened in 2020, and I would like to share it with you all. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. It's the best thing for a very specific audience. So I'm just going to ask you guys a couple of questions, and you can kind of like know if this is the thing for you. So do you guys like riddles? Oh, yeah. Do you like Greek mythology? I do. For sure. Do you like subtle biblical illusions? <laughs> oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> do you like existential anxiety? Well, I experience I like existential it. thinking. I don't know if I like the anxiety. Yeah. Do you like yeah. soap metaphors that assume way too much about your knowledge of how soap is made? No. Sure. That sounds delightful. <laughs> but I say, actually, I don't like those. <laughs> that sounds delightful. <laughs> so there's a band called the Oh Hellos. They make a bunch of music. They're a folk band. And they released a four album series over the last four years. They're named after the Greek winds, Notos, Eurus, uh, Boreas, and Zephyrus. And these four albums explore the question 
where do our ideas come from? And it explores our society's ideological divisions through the lens of someone undergoing like a dramatic shift in their worldview, starting from this kind of angry and bitter tribalism and ending up in this place of empathy in their journey along the way. And each album explores a different stage of that. It's like the Mm. first album is about this ignorance of an unchallenged worldview, one that's filled with anger and disapproval towards people who think differently. The second is called Eurus. It's like this unsettling that you feel when you're confronted with an alternative way of seeing the world, and it kind of shakes your foundations. The third album examines these feelings of, of alienation and isolation when you've left your old perspective, left your old community behind, but now you feel alone and you're filled with bitterness. Hmm. And the fourth album is about this hope of reconciliation that it's possible to bridge the gap between the two sides, that through the difficult work of examining, of self-reflection, examining where our ideas come from, we can find empathy for others that paves the way towards healing our divisions. And not only like is that just awesome to be thinking about and exploring at you know in this time of our culture, but they are filled with design patterns like you wouldn't believe. Like these songs, they'll take melodies and reinvent them from album to album and invest them with new meaning as it goes along. So like you'll have one song in the first album that means one thing, but they'll rework that melody to give it an entirely different feel and a different mood. They'll rework a lyric or a set of lyrics or a chorus from like albums past and you're like wait that sounds familiar and you realize what they've just done is they've like inverted the meaning of something that they meant originally and they've like changed it and morphed it as this like protagonist has undergone these transitions and now this sentiment means something entirely different and so it's like solving a puzzle as you go through these albums of finding all these patterns and it's so fun and it's so so brilliant and Olivia and I have, have been spending just enormous amounts of time like doing this. I come home from work almost every day and I'm like, Olivia, I figured out this song. Like I finally understand what it means now and it's so brilliant. And I'll just like just rattle off at her for like an hour about <laughs> what I think this song means about each and every lyric. And so yeah. one day she's making cookies and she's like in the process of kind of mixing everything together, measuring stuff out. And she's like, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just going. Like I'm super excited about this song that I just figured out. She's like, Christian, Christian. I love you and I'm really excited to talk about this, but like, I need you to be quiet for a minute so that I can measure this because I'm going to make mistakes. <laughs> I don't multitask very well. I'm going to make mistakes if you keep talking. So I didn't shut up, <laughs> of course. And we ended up eating cookies with triple the amount of baking soda that you're supposed to have in them. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh, that's awesome. That's pretty good. You did it. You ruined the cookies. I, I did. It was all my fault. I take full responsibility. It's tough to imagine a story, uh, this whole thing, this monologue you've been on. It's tough to imagine anything encapsulating just what I know of that's you right. and, and just your style and personality and things you like. I mean, this is just... A hundred years from now, we're going to be studying who is Christian Wingate, and they're going to be playing this. It's like, this is this, what you need yeah. to know. This is, <laughs> this is who he is. Yeah. And I have to say, Yo Hellos are one of my top five bands. And I didn't even know about them until you know, many years ago, a college lifer named Brian Rath, who some folks will know, and maybe he's even listening, yeah. told me, uh, you're not listening to the Yo Hellos. This is a band that was like designed for you. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> So if you want to go explore these albums, they're called Notos, Eurus, Boreas, and Zephyrus. Go read their website because they'll explain this narrative that they're tracking through. And then just keep the lyrics pulled up when you're listening to them because otherwise you're going to miss a lot. But it's awesome. If you're not up for like the work in kind of putting that puzzle together, which is so rewarding. But if you're not up for that, they have one of the best Christmas albums of any music out there, like hands down. So go listen to the Ohalos. Go do it. 
That's awesome. And I actually love that this is kind of the culmination of the project we're on as well, because that's also the basic assumption behind the New Testament letters. Like in some ways, they're just letters. It's just mail, right? Except that they're rich, they're beautiful, they've got design patterns, they've got Old Testament allusions, apparently they've got allusions to other, you know, first century apocalyptic literature. They're actually quite beautifully crafted works of art that deserve not only like cursory attention and don't just reward the first read, but like the literal 120th. Yeah, that's great. Great way to end. Couldn't say it any better myself. Thank you guys so much for being on. All right, that is it for First Peter. And that's it for the season of Your Pod and Your Staff. What a season it has been. I've said this before, but getting to do this little project has just been so rich for me personally. Like I felt a thrill reading the scriptures that I hadn't felt in a long time. And so I hope that was evident as you listen. And if nothing else, this has been a joy to do. And I really hope it's been a joy to listen to as well. Of course, this doesn't happen without the hard work of lots of people. So I want to say thank you to all of you who lent your mind and your voice to the show for the season. Miriam Hamilton, how great it was to see you again. Bronwyn Lee, you are now my family's favorite pastor at FBC. And Dan Seitz, you were worried about it, but I assure you, my good friend, that you did not ruin the brand. And to you, Christian, like I said, I'm super proud of you and very grateful that more people get the chance to know what it's like to have a conversation with you. And then, of course, there's Stanford Gibson, who obviously he's brilliant and he's hilarious, but it's hard to state the blessing that he is. And so thank you, Stanford, for your commitment to this journey, for reading the texts and chatting with me two early mornings a week to try and wrestle with them and model what it might look like to know, love, and take seriously these ancient texts in our lives. Who knows if we could do it without you? I just know I don't want to. And thanks, of course, to Kyle and Josh for the great music. We love it. And to Heidi Rudevotes. You did it. 10 episodes in the books. Good job by you, Heidi. And thank you so much for your hard and tedious work of editing our voices. If you haven't done this kind of thing, it's tough to imagine the hours poured into editing something like this. That's a lot of Stanford and Peter in your ear. So I will not be offended if you don't want to talk to me for quite a while. But to close the season, College Life, we love you. And to be honest, the way that you've handled this quarter, the way that you've committed yourself in a really hard time, a really hard season, the way you've showed up when you have, the way you've loved each other, I'm just really proud of you and really grateful. And you deserve a break. So enjoy it. And we'll see you next quarter. 